One of the uh, interesting phenomena that's going on are the people who are becoming Muslims around the world. And of course, we would like to know why is it that individuals are becoming Muslim. Uh, when I was in America uh, finishing off my master's degree in Islamic studies there in California, I did as my thesis a research as to why American Christians were becoming Muslims. And to do that, I had to go to the East Coast. And so I went up and down the East Coast, went up to uh, all the urban areas, because that's where the Muslim converts are. That's where most of the Muslims are, uh, starting there in Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Harrisburg, going up to Quebec and other cities up and down the East Coast. And I tried to find as many converts that were willing to talk to me about it. And there was quite a few. The vast majority of them were Afro-American and Afro-Caribbean. And as they were uh, answering me and as they, we were having these interviews back and forth, I was questioning them concerning the criteria. And there were basically 12 criteria that they gave me, 12 main reasons. Now, there were many others, but I wanted to focus in on these 12 criteria. And what I did is I put a statistical analysis going from the most important down to the 12th most important. And what I'm going to do to now is look at each one of these 12 criteria, and I want to try to unpack them as best we can. Now, these are not my criteria. These are their criteria, and some of them might be some surprising, but I think they will help us to understand what is it and what it, why is it that most people are becoming Muslims. The vast majority of these are black Afro-Americans. There was one or two whites. I just couldn't find many whites in the East Coast. When I came to England and working in England, I found many more converts that were white, primarily from Catholic background. But these are the ones that they came up with. And the first category, the first reason why most of them said they became Muslims was because of its social laws, Islamic social laws. And that kind of surprised me. I would not have put that right at the top. What did they mean by that? <clears throat> they liked Islam because they felt it was a comprehensive guide to life. Uh, by that, it means that they, it had every answer for every area of life. They would call it a, a religion of 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Unlike Christianity, that's just really one day a week, and in the morning of that day, or maybe one or two hours on Sunday morning, that's about all they considered Christianity to really be relevant for. Islam tells you how to walk, how to talk, how to drink, how to grow your beard, how to tr treat your wife, raise your kids. In every category, it has rules and regulations, and that was a real attraction for many of them. Because of that, they felt that Islam brought about very disciplined living. It forced people to live by a certain code, by certain rules, and they liked that. That was attracted to them. Women that I talked to felt protected. In fact, they felt ennobled. And that was always a shocking one to me. They enjoyed wearing the hijab. And I remember asking my, uh, the women there, well, what was it about it that ennobled them? They said, well, as they walked down the street, they didn't have men catcalling them. And they realized when they had the, the niqab or the jilbab or the burda or the burqa, whatever the name they gave to it, when they were completely covered, they really felt protected. No one could see what they looked like. And, of course, as a result of that, they didn't get the stares or they didn't get any of the, uh, the references to them in public. And for them, at least, they felt protected. Now, I said, well, that's interesting. I said, well, let me ask you something. If you're covering yourself up, you're being protected from what? And they said, well, from the men. And I said, okay, so where's the problem here? You were the men. And they said, well, of course, the men. I said, well, then covering you up, how does that solve the problem? 
I said, it's basically just like putting a Band-Aid over a cancer. The cancer is still there with the men. And one of the things I like about Christianity, it puts the blame where the blame, it, it, uh, where the blame is. In other words, it blames the eye of the beholder. If you are looking at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery, the Bible says. So pluck out the eye. Rather than dressing up and covering up the woman who may try seduce the men, as Islam does, Christianity forces the person who is guilty to pay that price. Now, I find that fascinating because in Islam, it says very clearly in Surah 6, Ayah 164, and Surah 50, Ayah 38, that nobody can take the punishment or the guilt or the sin of another. Yet the women are taking on the guilt of the men, contradicting what the Quran says. They also said that Islam was the only religion powerful enough to stand up to the depravity of society. Now, most of these were Afro-Americans. They had lived in the inner city where there's an awful lot of degradation. There's certainly an awful lot of uh, drug problem, and there's an awful lot of crime, violence. And they thought that, they, that certainly the, the mosque, and this is true, the mosque was doing a much better job than the church was at bringing about some type of stability in the family, stability in the environment, in the community and on the schools and whatnot, and I thought that says something about Islam, that it's able to do that. But then I would imagine any dictatorial environment or any dictatorial body or group would have been able to do that. That happens in any kind of, even in any country where you have a dictator that has rules and regulations that has very serious punishments for that, will contain and maintain a society very strictly and very disciplined, but there's no freedom in that. The second criteria and the second reason why the people became Muslims. The second attraction was the unity of God. Now, this made a lot more sense to me. The idea that there is one God and one alone in Islam, whereas in Christianity you have three in one. The triunity, the trinity, really bothered them. They had a, a lot of difficulty. Now, I can understand that. I think we have a, a, a hard time as Christians not only defining what we believe, but defending what we define. We don't teach much about the trinity. It's a mystery. We know that. And we've talked about it already. And we're going to talk about more when we get into some of, the, uh, uh, some of the frequently asked questions. But certainly what was interesting is they didn't like the idea that they, were not, they could not defend it. They could not define it. And so when Muslims question, then when they will question you, because this is usually the first question you get when you talk with Muslims on the Trinity, they could not come up with any answer. And because of that, they felt they would rather uh, serve a God that's much easier to defend, much easier to define. They didn't like the fact that they liked the fact that Islam had no intercessor, that they can go directly to God. They can go directly to him. And I said, that's interesting. Can you really talk to God? Can, does he respond to you? Is there a relationship there? Because that's something I can do in Christianity. I can go directly to God. Jesus Christ is God. There's the beauty of it. They had a hard time believing that Jesus Christ was God. And, of course, the idea of the Trinity, the fact that if Jesus sits at God's right hand... That implies two gods, they told me. Why did he not go back to his original form? And if God was in Jesus, and, and then Jesus then comes down to earth and becomes human, human, does that not dilute God's power, they asked, and dilute his transcendence? And they, I, I guess by that they assumed that when God, if God were to come to earth, and by coming a human, he would be corrupted by his humanity. And I said, no, not at all. Even the Quran admits that when Jesus was on earth, he was perfect. He was sinless. Surah 19, Ayah 19 says that. God can certainly come to earth and not be in part impacted by the sin of the earth. That's one of the great omnipotence uh, abilities of God as being omnipotent. 
Now, we'll talk more about the Tawhid, and we'll talk more about the Trinity in a future talk, so we won't stay in too much more on that. The, the third attraction was the idea of brotherhood. The fact that Islam taught brotherhood. The fact that only Christianity has a problem with racism. Now, they were coming from an Afro-American community, and I'm sure they, any, every one of them had some experience of racism in their life. And they felt that this was something that was uniquely a problem of Christianity, not a problem of Islam. The idea of slavery, they said, was something that really attracted them because slavery is not a problem in Islam. It's only a problem in Christianity. It was the Christians that enslaved their ancestors. So therefore, they saw it as uniquely Christian. And I remember scratching my head on this, and I used to ask them, I said, have you looked at the historical record? Are you familiar with the historical record? Are you aware of the fact that before the Europeans got into the slave trade, that the Arabs had slavery for a thousand years before that. In fact, it was the Arabs that supplied the slaves to the Europeans. I said, have you ever looked and asked where the Europeans went and bought their slaves? There's no documented case of any Europeans ever going onto the mainland of Africa. Unlike what Roots tells us, that's a misnomer. That has never been proven. No documented case of any Europeans ever going onto the African subcontinent for one very good reason. They would have died. They didn't have the resistance to the diseases at that time. Even the missionaries who went there in the early 1800s, 80% of them died within two years because they didn't have the resistance to the diseases. So what the Europeans did is they stay in the islands and the Arabs would bring out the slaves to them. Well, where'd the Arabs get them from? No one asked that question. What's more, I asked my Muslim friends, are you aware of the fact <clears throat> that the abolition of slavery is uniquely a Christian endeavor. Only Christians have abolished slavery. Wilberforce, we're celebrating that right now, the 200th year of his centennial, of his, of, of his eradication, the abolition of slavery in 1807. This one man, a Christian man, spent his whole life eradicating slavery because he knew that there could not be one people above another. He knew that all men and women, I'm sorry, men and women, Slave or free, Greek or Gentile, according to Galatians 3, verse 28, they are all equal in Christ. And because of that ideal, because of that ideal, he spent his whole life, his whole career, eradicating slavery. It was Christians uniquely who have eradicated slavery. It was Christian missionaries in Africa who took freed slaves and created a country called Sierra Leone that was created by them to take free slaves and put them there so they would not be re-slaved. I said, look at the abolition movements that, st that came about because of what Wilberforce did in 1807. In our country, in the United States, the eradication of slavery finally happened in 1860. We had a war over it. And then it had a rippling effect that went right across the European world. And I said, if you look at the abolition of slavery historically, you will find it was the Muslim nations were the last nations to eradicate slavery. Saudi Arabia, 1960. The last country in the world to eradicate slavery is Mauritania, almost 99% Islamic. And it finally eradicated slavery in 1981, just a little over 25 years ago. And the only reason it eradicated slavery is because of the pressure of the United Nations. And the reason why Muslims have been so reticent to eradicate slavery is because the Quran admonishes, basically permits them to have slaves. It encourages them to have slaves in Surah 33. Read it for yourself. The Prophet had slaves. There has never been an abolition movement in Islam. I've asked that my Muslim friends, show me one abolition movement in Islam. It has never existed. Because if there was an abolition movement, they would have to go against what the Quran is saying.
No. The third reason, not only about slavery, but it went on. They said they liked the Hajj. They liked the equality that they saw in the Hajj. They liked the fact that when they got there to Mecca, they saw that people were from all over the world, from many different races. They were all wearing the same gown, proving that there's a unity in Islam. Fifthly, and this is rather curious, the fifth attraction was the Quran's beauty and applicability. And I had to scratch my head on this one. That's interesting because almost everyone I talked to had just been Muslims for a few years. They hadn't grown up with the Quran. They were hearing it for the first time. And I have grown up with the Quran. I've heard it for 25 years. And I cannot find that sonority that they're talking about. To me, it is not beautiful at all. When I read the Quran, it's full of disjunction. It just doesn't flow. There's no chronology. There's no complete story. Well, there's one complete story. That's about it. It jumps all over the place from theme to theme, from subject to subject. Uh, there's no transitional phrase to help you from subject to subject. It's full of repetition. It puts me to sleep. Where's the beauty in the Quran? And I love to know, and I ask these, these young men and these young women, where was this beauty that they were talking about? They had a hard time defining that for me. They could not really tell me why it was beautiful. It was almost like they had a romantic ideal of the Quran. What they did like, it was it, it, that it was the final revelation. It was the seal of all revelation. Therefore, it was the best, the greatest the most perfect. I said, well, that's interesting. Do you know that there were other revelations that came after? Ghulam Ahmad got a revelation in 1800 in Kashmir. He was a Muslim. The Ahmadiyyas have come out of his teachings. There have been many Piras along the way, many what we call Sufi Piras or Sufi sages who have got revelations, many of them all over the world, who also have starred their own brotherhoods. Oh, we also know of Joseph Smith, my namesake. Joseph Smith, who got a revelation in 1800s there in America. That was a further revelation from Muhammad. Charles Taze Russell, another one. There are many prophets that have come afterwards, such as Sun Young Moon, who is still living today, who all claim to be prophets of God, who all claim to have their own revelation. What makes the Quran so unique? It's not the last one. If you're going to look for the last one, you're going to keep changing as new prophets keep popping up. But they liked the fact that it was the, great, the last great revelation, protecting the earlier ones, as they say in Surah 3, Ayah 3 to 4. They liked the fact that it had never been changed, that it's found all over the world, that it's treated with respect. And I said, that's interesting, never been changed. I said, are you aware of the fact that there is no complete manuscript of this Quran before the 10th century? I said, are you aware of the fact that the earliest manuscripts that we have available, the Samarkand manuscript, the Topkapi manuscript, the Ma'il manuscript, the 2165 manuscript, the, the Sana manuscript, the ones we're looking at that none of them agree? Are you aware of the fact that the, the Samarkand manuscript, we can get it, I have it on my computer, you can get it from Princeton University, take a look of it, it only goes up to Surah 41 and it has a hundred manuscript variants. They had never heard that before, I wouldn't expect them to hear that. Muslims aren't telling the world about these manuscript variants, about how the Quran has been changed, about the, how the fact that there is not one complete Quran for 300 years after the Prophet's death. We don't have any complete Quran before the 11th century. The sixth reason was its simplicity. The simplicity of Islamic teaching. Now that I can understand. Because when you look at Islam, it is very simple. Basically, there's just five pillars and six beliefs. That's it. You just have to follow those five practices and believe those six things. And that's it. That's all you have to do. It's very simple. That's exactly what I would expect a man-made religion to be like. 
man-made religions are popping up all over the world, and they all have roughly four or five practices, and they all have five or six beliefs, just like Islam. If a man were going to make a religion, he'd make a religion just like Islam. In fact, when you stop and look at it, it is very simple, it's very rationalistic, and it's very Aristotelian. It follows the same model, the same theology that Aristotle was giving in the 4th century B.C. Now, stop and think, who is the one that translated Aristotle's works? It was the Muslims that translated it. We would not have Aristotle today had it not been for the Muslims. It seems they didn't just translate it, they also borrowed his theology, which shows why it's so simple. No mystery. Even a child could understand it. No trappings, no liturgy. They love the fact that the mosques were simple and, 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 and attractive, and I think that's true. There's an awful lot to say for the simplicity of mosques. No singing. Women were kept behind men, and I had to scratch my head on this one. No singing. And these were people I was talking about, most of them from the Afro-American community, and a community that in the church has resplendent, is replete with song. The music that's come out of the Afro-American church is second to none. Admired all over the world. The traditions, the hymns, the, the hymns that came out of slavery, the Negro spirituals, the jazz that was invented by the Afro-Americans, the enormous amount of variety of music that still continues today, the creativity that's come out of the church, all of that they completely rejected. And I thought that was sad. Even when I asked them straight face to face, are you telling me that all this music that you've grown up with, do you believe that it's not beautiful? None of them were just sat there looking at me. I don't think they'd ever thought it through before they gave me the comment. I don't think they ever thought through the implications of what they were saying. I don't know what happened when I left. I hope some of them rethought that as they realized that they were leaving enormous hundreds of years of tradition behind in becoming Muslims because Islam does not allow you to sing, does not allow you to worship, does not allow you to elevate any name because in doing that, they consider it to be idolatrous. That's why you don't see music in Islam. That's why you don't see images. That's why the only thing you see in Islam is written text. Otherwise, it's all idolatrous. How sad. Because that's the beauty. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of religion. That's the beauty of David there praising God, dancing into the streets of Jerusalem. Right back there in 800,000 uh, BC, he was doing it. And we're still doing it today. I felt sad for those Afro-Americans who had no idea of the implications of what they were saying. The fact that women were kept behind men. I found that hugely disturbing, that women should be behind women, that sh women should be second-class citizens. I asked the women there that were there seated, I said, when you say that you feel ennobled as a woman, I said, have you looked at the Quran? Have you looked at Surah 4, Ayah 1, which says that you can have, your husband can have up to four wives? Have you looked at Surah 4, 11, which stipulates that, a, that you only have half the inheritance of a, of a man? Have you looked at Surah 4, 34, that allows your husband to beat you if you disobey him? Have you looked at Surah 2, Ayah 282, which stipulates that you only have half the testimony in court? And the reason why is because you're less intelligent than a man? Have you looked at Surah 2, Ayah 223? This is a horrendous verse which stipulates that you are nothing more than the tilt for your husband and he can come and plow you anytime he wants, at any place. Have you ever looked at the Quran when you say you've been ennobled by this book? The women that I talked to, not one of them knew anything, anything about these verses. No one had bothered to tell them about these verses. They had never read it for themselves. The Quran that they had been given, it was an abridged Quran, a Quran that was meant for converts, a Quran that only had sanitized verses. They hadn't read these verses about women. Now, I don't know what happened after I left. I hope I disturbed him.
But it's fascinating that women were becoming Muslims because they felt that they were being ennobled by Islam, ennobled by the Quran, ennobled by the God named Allah. Number seven. They liked the testimony of other Muslims. And this was the only one that I could really understand. The testimony of other Muslims. I have to say, I've met many Muslims that I've, I've admired. Many Muslims that I have had contact with. Many radical Muslims who I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, who I argue weekly on a weekly basis. I have an awful lot of admiration for them because I find in them something I find in myself, something I admire in anybody. I find in them people who really are searching for God, who really do want to know who God is, what He has to, in their life, who, who want, really want to know what is their responsibility vis-a-vis -vis their God. And I admire I admire their honesty. What I find tragic is what they're finding and what they're doing and what this God is telling them to do. I can't blame them because I would do the same thing if I was a Muslim. But I would imagine you could say that about almost any religion. You'll find noble people in any religion, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, atheism, agnosticism. Any ism will find people who I admire. It's not hard to be nice. It's, all, it's easy to be nice. That's not how you rate religion. It's what the scriptures say and what the religion does to you that bothers me. It's what this Quran does to Muslims that bothers me. It, what, it's the model of the Prophet Muhammad that bothers me. Because the violence I see of Muhammad, the violence I see in this book, what this does to women, what this does to minorities, what this does to people who reject it, that's what bothers me. That's not very pretty. That's not very honorable. Yes, you will find many Muslims that are honorable despite their religion. They're able to rise above it or not read it or not be aware of what it says. But true Islam, if it follows the book and follows the man, is not a pretty Islam. The eighth reason was its rationality. Now, this I can understand as well, very similar to its simplicity. It is a very rational religion. There is no mystery. There is no trinity to explain. There's no belief in the incarnation. That's very easy. There's no belief in personal sin. That's very easy, except that seems to be contradictory because it says in the Quran that no man can take on another's sin. And yet, I find all the time that women are taking on men's sin. And I certainly know that... On the cross, the person who got on the cross was not Jesus. Another man was given his image, so he was taken on the sin of Jesus. So there's lots of contradictions all the way through the Quran on this. But I just leave that as a contradiction. They believe that there's no need for redemption. To me, I find that fascinating. I said, well, then how do you define sin? Most of them didn't have a definition for it. They didn't like the idea that they were imputed with Adam and Eve's sin. I said, well, you are imputed with Adam and Eve's sin, even as a Muslim. You can't get away from it. Because Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. They're no longer up in the garden, neither are you, because that garden's up in space. The fact that you're on earth means that you're imputed with her sin. You can't get away with it by running, from, by running to Islam. No complicated traditions, they tell me. No catechisms, no water baptism. This they like. They don't like any of these rituals. They wanted something that was very simple, very rational, very man-made. That they could pigeonhole themselves in a box. I love the mystery of Christianity. I love the fact that I can't explain God wholly. I wouldn't expect to with my finite mind. Any more than I can explain the virgin birth. Of course I can't explain it. I just accept it on faith. As Muslims have to accept it on faith. I can't explain the electricity of these lights. We all know that the electricity works, but nobody knows how it works. 
Scientists have never known how electricity works. They just accept it on faith, and they use it, and they harness it. I don't ask the scientists to tell me that before I believe it exists. Any more than I ask God to define himself to me completely. No. I would not have the audacity or even the comprehension to understand God completely. Number nine, they like the practices of Islam. Interestingly, all the men like the polygamy, which I found maybe made a lot of sense. They liked the fact that they could have more than one wife. I asked the women, did they like the polygamy? Not many of them had too much good to say about it. They just basically were resolved to it, that it was something that came along with the territory. But they did all seem to like the prayer. They liked the idea that everything was ritualistic. Five times a day, pointing in the same direction. I said, you like that? You mean you can only do it those five times in the morning, after, in midday, before sunrise, before sunset, after sunset, and before the evening hour? You like that better than what you can do now? I don't have to pray to God just those five times. I can pray to God at any time, at any place, and in any direction. That gives me the freedom to communicate with God. I don't want to sit and do the same thing every day. Now, can you imagine if that was all prayer is, basically just saying the same rote thing every day, what kind of relationship is that? Do you have that kind of relationship with your husband, I asked the women? Do you say the same thing to your husband only five times a day? Well, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know what your relationship is like. But certainly, that's not a true relationship, and that's not a true marriage. Any more than I would say that if I were talking to my wife, I'd want to know what she's doing that day. I want to know what, how things are going on. I want to know if things are bad. I want to make sure that I respond to her in kind. It's an evolving relationship. It's always an evolving. And that's exactly what prayer is like with my God. The hijab, the jilbab, they said, was something, another practice that they like. And I, getting back to what I said earlier, I could not believe that they enjoyed being covered up like that. I said to the Muslim men, what is it about it? What is part of it that should be covered up? They said, at least the hair should be covered up. They said, for some of this, it doesn't matter if the face is exposed. I said, why the hair? The hair is not the beautiful part of a woman's uh, uh, body. It's her face. It's her face that gives her identity. It's the face, if anything, if you're going to be seduced by anything, it's going to be the face. Cover up the face. In fact, the Quran does say to cover the face, which is fascinating. Because once you cover the face, you've covered her identity. She becomes nobody. I've got this great picture on my refrigerator of a Saudi Arabian gentleman, I think in England, who's taking a picture of his whole family, six women all lined up, all of them, all black bags, every one of them. He's got his camera there, and he's trying to get them together, and he's going to take their picture. They all look exactly the same. You don't know which is who, but there's Big Ben behind, and there's these six women all lined up at different heights. No identity. Absolutely no identity whatsoever. There could be any six women. Who knows whether or not they're even in his family? How does he know they're in his family? I guess he has to talk to them. It just completely destroys your identity, your uniqueness, that which makes you who you are. The tenth reason, it's superiority, superiority over all religions. They like the fact that it's the final revelation. We've already talked about that earlier. And they like the fact that it was the fastest growing religion. They like the fact that they want to be part of that which is the biggest, the best, the greatest, the fastest, the, and the largest. They like the power of Islam. The fact that it was so, every Muslim was so sure of what they believed, whereas Christians were so unsure of what they believed. I thought that was a tragedy. And I think that's tragedy. If we don't know what we believe, why in the world aren't we learning it? 
They said that Christianity is prepared for the hereafter, while Islam is prepared for both then and now. They like the fact that Christians were only interested in what's going to happen in the future when they go on the other side of death, whereas Islam was much more interested in what's going on right now in the world. And I said, there's an awful lot of truth in that. I think we as Christians sometimes are so concerned with the hereafter, we don't at all are no earthly good. And that's unfortunate. But that's not how it used to be. And that certainly is not what we see in Genesis or when we see in the early church. The early church was very concerned with the poor and the oppressed. All the way through scripture, we've been told to take care of the poor and the oppressed. And if you look at history of missions, you will see that it's the missionaries around the world who have set up the hospitals, who have set up the, the clinics, who have set up the schools and the orphanages. Almost in every nation around earth, you will see schools, hospitals that were set up by missionaries. Certainly, we've had a large tradition, a long tradition of helping the needy, of helping the destitute. And I said to my Muslim friend, if you take a comparison and look at the Muslim missions versus the Christian missions, you'll see a, a direct contrast. Muslims only help other Muslims. The Red Crescent only goes to Muslim countries. The Red Cross and all the other Christian institutions go to every country, which seems to support what we know about our God. Our God loves unconditionally. Your God loves only conditionally. Your God only loves the other, those who obey him, those who submit to him. Therefore, you reflect that in the way you serve. Our God loves everybody, and we reflect that in the way we, reserve, in the way we serve. They told me that Islam was attractive because it was responsible for the enlightenment and modern technology. I had a smile when I heard this because I hear this all the time from Muslims. Algebra was invented by Muslims. Basically, all of science we have today was invented by Muslims. Therefore, Islam is superior. When you look at the Quran, there's a lot of scientific proofs here that could only be found, that have only been discovered today. Yet, how could it that a illiterate man could have known about these scientific proofs? Embryological cycle, the hydrological cycle, the fact that the, the earth rotates around the sun, the fact that there are waves upon waves, the fact that there are, there are um, channels of water underneath, underneath the earth, the fact that there are different types of water out in the ocean, these barriers between the two waters, over and over again, all these different scientific proofs, and many of these Muslims were repeating them one after another. I have answers for every one of them. Some of them are absolutely ridiculous, and many of them are based on error. I said, if Islam is so responsible for science, then where has Islam gone today? What has happened to that science? I said, look at the Muslim world today. Take a look at the whole swath of Islam as you look up here. Just take a look and see where it is. Right across North Africa, right up into the Middle East, coming on over here, North India, over into Bangladesh, down through Malaysia and Indonesia. Just take a look at that. The Muslim world today, it's the poorest area on earth. The 1040 window, we call it. The poorest area on earth. What has happened to all that science? Why is that Islam is so doing so poorly, scholastically, academically, in every category, when it comes to quality of life, they are at the bottom of the list. The only nations that are doing well in the Muslim world are oil-rich nations, which has nothing to do with Islam, given to them freely by the oil in the ground. Number 11. They liked and they were attracted by Islam because of its theology found in the Quran. They like the fact that sin is understandable and it's based on justice. It's not something that is paid by other people or by other men or by one man named Jesus Christ. They like the fact that paradise was something to be yearned for. And they like the fact that Islam had a theology of peace. 
no, I thought this was fascinating. I said, had you ever really looked at paradise in Surah 55 and Surah 56? Have you looked at the model of paradise that's there in the Quran? Do you realize it's a very carnal paradise? A paradise for basically for men. There's not much there for women. Based on wine, women, and songs full of carnal desires. Rivers of water, rivers of wine. The very thing you cannot touch in this earth, you can swim in there. All these women that are waiting upon the whim. Man, the very things that the, the people that can, you cannot look at, you have to cover up. There you're going to have 72 of them waiting upon you. What's there for women? I asked the women. What's there for you? They were quiet. They hadn't read Surah 55. They hadn't read 56. Again, that part was not in their abridged version. Theology of peace. This book, a book of peace, I asked them. Have you read the Quran? Have you looked at the surahs? Have you looked at the 149 sword verses? Have you looked at Surah 9? The very last surah to be revealed to the Prophet, therefore the most authoritative surah in the entire Quran, because according to the law of abrogation, in Surah 2106, in Surah 16, Ayah 101, that which comes later is Nasik, that which comes first is Mansuk. Anything that comes later that's Nasik, it has authority over everything that comes before. If you have two verses that contradict, you always go with the Nasik verse. Surah 9 is the most authoritative surah, because it's the last surah revealed to the Prophet that the year he died in 632. Take a look at Surah 9, I said to them. Just read the entire chapter. It is full of violence. Slay the unbeliever wherever ye find them. Wherever ye find them. Besiege them, it says. Lay in wait for them with every kind of ambush. That's peaceful. Oh, that hasn't have to do with us. That has to do with the mushrik, the pagans, the idolaters. I said, well, then go to verse 29. Make war on the people of the book. That's us. Until we pay the zakat. That's peaceful. What peace are you talking about? Your prophet is peaceful? Did you see what he did to the Jews? Did you see what he did to those who criticized him? Did you see what he did to Asma, the poetess, when he first moved to Medina? The first woman who wrote poetic verse against him? He said, who's going to take care of this woman for me? And Umer, the blind cleric, says, he decided that night to go to her house where she was suckling her babe. And he took a sword and plunged it into her breast and killed her. Next morning, he comes back to Muhammad, and he tells Muhammad what he has done. Muhammad turns to Umar and says, Blessed are you. No longer are you Umar the blind. You are now Umar the seeing. Blessing him for killing the woman as she was suckling her babe. What was her crime? She wrote poetic verse. That was her only crime. Much like the Danish cartoons. We know of 25 people who either wrote poetic verse or criticized Muhammad. Every one of them were executed by Muhammad. In Medina. This is a religion of peace. This is a theology of peace. This is a book of peace. Muhammad is a man of peace. Have you looked at him? Have you read his biography? Have you read this book? See, much of what we're finding here is basically a sanitized view of Islam, a politically correct view of Islam, a Western view of Islam. Lastly, Islam spirituality. They liked Islam because it was pure against any corrupting influence. It placed Allah where he belonged. It put him up high, transcendent. Unlike Christianity that brought him down to earth. They liked the transcendence of God. The fact that he was totally, the fact that he was indomitable, the fact that he was strong. The fact that we are absolutely controlled and dependent on him. They didn't want to think for themselves. They didn't want to have to make decisions. They liked the idea that God, Allah, was responsible for all their actions for all their thoughts. And basically, in some ways, this is exactly what I would expect Islam to have done. 
Basically, what I heard people saying, and this was fascinating, as I was going through all these 12, these 12 attractions, what I heard these people saying over and over again is, I don't want to think for myself. I want God to do all the thinking. I don't want to have to act for myself. I want God to do all the acting. I want to belong to a religion that's bigger than me, that basically tells me what I'm to do, what I'm to say, where I'm to go, how I'm to act. Everything is dictated. I feel insecure. And that's exactly what Islam does. It takes people who are insecure and gives them security. But it un does not introduce them to the real God. It keeps people in a childlike state. It doesn't let them grow up. It doesn't let them relate. Treats them like automatons, like robots, like puppets on a string. And the Islam that they knew was an abridged Islam, a sanitized Islam, a very politically correct Islam, Islam that had been manufactured in America for Americans, more specifically for black Americans, Afro-Americans. It's not the true Islam. It's not the Islam in this book. It's not the Islam that I see in the Prophet's life. And I felt sorry for the people I talked to. I could see why they were attracted sometimes. Other places I was a little surprised. But I said, oh, look what you're leaving behind. Look at the music you're leaving behind. Look at the traditions you're leaving behind. Look at the theology you're leaving behind. Look at the God you're leaving behind. Look at the person, Jesus Christ. Please reconsider. Be careful of what attracts you. Now, fortunately, what I do know and what I have found, especially uh, doing further research here in the United Kingdom, is that most converts usually only stay about three years. A lot of converts then leave after three years because they see it as a romantic ideal. I don't know how many of those I interviewed back in the 1990s or back late 1980s, whether or not they're still Muslim. I really hope that they've come home again. I really hope that some of the questions that I was able to tell them, some of the, some of the doubts I was able to put in their minds started festering and festering, and the Holy Spirit started to work. Because I remember each time after I left, I prayed, God, help these people. Holy Spirit, please come down and start bringing them back to the truth, bringing them home again. They need to come home. They've got the wrong religion, they've got the wrong faith, they've got the wrong book, the wrong prophet. They're attracted by the wrong things. Everything I saw in these 12 attractions, we have an answer for. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the Bible. And thank God for our faith.